Right. Welcome back to the Bridge Podcast. This is episode 55. I'm your host, John Lamberton. Today, I'm joined by my guest, Lewis Nielsen. Lewis is a composer, an educator, and activist. Um, he's got a history teaching composition over at Oberlin. And he's currently at uh, or entering uh, some teaching at uh, Manhattan School of Music. That's, that's correct? That's correct. Excellent. Well, um, thanks for joining me. Looking forward to talking to you. Uh, so, as you know, um, I sort of start off the conversations asking people about their coffee preferences or their coffee habits. Um, it just gives me a particular sort of uh, insight into their personality. Uh, can you share any coffee habits that you have? Um, kind of depends where I am. I'm very partial to Italian espresso because the crema is much richer. Um, when I don't really know where I'm going, I tend to drink Americano. So I, I think just, I consider that to be on the safe side, but God only knows if that's the truth. But I, I like dark roasts, um, uh, especially Sumatra or um, Ethiopian, uh, not so much Ergachev, um, but I do, I, do like, uh, I do like dark roast coffee. I like to drink it black, uh, don't like sugar, because I like the taste. And uh, I don't, drink it obsessively like 10 cups a day but i do like to start my to start my day with a nice solid jolt so in terms of like uh i mean it may be a few servings like uh in terms of ounceage i guess it sort of changes with espresso versus americanos but yeah. uh you aren't you aren't super crazy about your consumption but are you a conservative drinker are you moderate or reasonable in your consumption it depends. I'm, I can be tempted um, with coffee. I mean, if I'm sitting in a coffee shop, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if you go to the barber shop, you'll get a haircut eventually. I'm, if I'm in a coffee shop, I'll get another cup. I mean, if it's, if it's real, if it's really good, um, especially if I'm in Italy or if I'm in France, I'm very likely to just hang out and probably just get wired. But <laughs> um it's funny i feel like some people such as you know myself or you know more successfully david lynch like really depend on coffee for inspiration um do you feel like you could get by creatively without it or is it integral to uh being a creative individual never thought about it but i've really never tried um <laughs> i i tend to i have my habit of getting up drinking coffee and off and running I don't think that's really ever varied very much. Gotcha. Cool. Well, um, I got some insight into your coffee drinking. Uh, thank you for that. So uh, I guess uh, to just start, um, you, know, you are, I think, uh, a very well-respected educator in composition. And, um, you know, I, I've sort of been wondering, uh, you know, how do you evaluate the quality of somebody's compositional technique or, um, sort of what they're doing without being influenced by stylistic concerns. Like, how do you sort of take a non-biased look at uh, what they're doing under the hood and try to help them? In teaching, to a very great extent, I'm teaching people who are rarely older than their, uh, say, late teens to uh, mid to later 20s. Okay. And I think especially in the United States, it's going a little bit far to expect people to come in with obvious talent 
that you can tell right off the bat that this person is absolutely terrific. If they've got a very uh, large musical background, like a lot of the Chinese students I have, uh, that could be a little bit different because their musical background is gonna be much broader. But I don't tend to make too many judgments right off the bat, mainly because the acquisition of, of compositional technique, learning you know, both historical practices, but, all, in order, but also getting to the point where you're really starting to see what you really want to do is a process of discovery that's usually gonna take for most students longer than their 20s. So it's not that I don't expect people to be very good coming in, but I, I have to be very careful not to have too many expectations on the front end because how they develop and how they, what they learn from, how well they learn, how well they listen, how well I listen is a, a relationship that gets uh, developed over a certain period of time. I, I feel most able to maybe take a look or a judgment or be able to sort of see a trajectory at the end of someone's uh, work with me, for example. Um, but you don't always know you don't always know who's really going to uh, be successful um, and successful, not necessarily defined as, you know, getting that great job or um, getting, getting into the movie business and making a lot of money, but act actually showing that, that they've got a, an ability to expand whatever field they're working in. Um, it's not something I, I really try to evaluate. Um, my job is, is to sort of help people, um, gain the, the experience and the background that they need and also develop technique in general, but also the technique that's most appropriate for them because technique is both broad and uh, communal, but it's also individual. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's my job is to sort of help, help people um, not make, you know, help them to avoid mistakes possibly, but also to help people see, you know, when, when pressing on something might, might be the very, very much the right thing to do, even if it's maybe the more difficult thing or the less likely to be executed. Thing. Do you think that having a student whose uh, technique or just like kind of their capabilities is like pretty impressive? Is, is that a more difficult uh, position to be put in as a teacher? Not at all. Um, I love teaching students who's, uh, who have a... Um, a capacity to learn a great deal, but also bring a great deal to the table. I've had some students like that um, at Oberlin. Um, they, it, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult. It was just, just re really fantastic. Uh, my relations with them, I think, are continue to this day, and I, I, enjoy, I really enjoy and look forward to seeing what they're doing. That's when the conversation become can become extremely rich, and the. Uh, Things, you know, my my job is to sort of help them um, have the courage to do what they really want to do. Because once you've acquired a good technique, once you've really got an image and a vision of what you want to do, a lot of times it's a question of having the courage to really follow through it and do it and follow through to the maximum extent. Um, we live in a rather constrained world where, you know, time limits are given to uh, both recitals in particular institutions or in competitions or so forth. And that doesn't encourage people to really stretch, stretch out, reach the limits of what they can do, find those limits so that the next time out, they're able to do more, go further still. Um, it's wonderful to have students like that. Absolutely. Uh, um, 
those are those are lessons that you that you, when you're knocking at the door because the teacher isn't done with the previous lesson. That, those are those lessons. <laughs> just just keep going because there's so much to say and so much to to discuss. Um, so with composition, you know, it strikes me that there's like a lot of it these days is kind of for practical purposes or kind of, you know, like, like film scoring or like video game music. Um, but then there's like this kind of other special composition, which I think is what you're interested in, what I'm interested in, or it's like, it's, I think it's taken a place in a sort of academic realm now. I don't know that it's fundamentally academic, but, um, it, I'm curious how you see composition within that sort of realm where it's like. Uh, composition for the sake of composition. It's not to support visual storytelling in a movie. It's not to like have background music. It's not for entertainment, but specifically like a kind of design or um, artistic thing. Um, uh, how do you think about that? Actually, academies are increasingly wanting to develop and are funding and, and supporting uh, commercial. Uh, music, commercial music, and music for consumption, let's say. Mm -hmm. That's true in performances, but especially in composition, because that is, you know, we live in America. America is a place where money uh, equates to, equates value. Mm -hmm. um, this is the land, land of you get what you, what you pay for, and the more you pay, the more you have a right to expect, um, or the, the more you believe the quality might be. So the, the, what, what is academic is increasingly what's fueling the, the film industry, what's uh, fueling video games and so forth. Um, and of course that can be done well or badly or conventionally. The, the challenge there academically is to get people to do stuff that is nominally original, but not so original that it starts to really dominate, say something that's visual or something else. Mm -hmm. That's a skill in and of itself. And I've taught students who want to get into that world. Um, I'm not sure how great I am at that, but I've certainly, I've certainly, uh, I've certainly done it. Um, the world of what you might call serious concert music composition is a much more narrow world. There are quite a few people who are interested in it, but I think it's also a world that in terms of the United States, it's, it's, uh, it's become an increasingly smaller niche market in mm -hmm. a way. And it's the property of only really the top rank of schools. Um, and not all of them. Uh, for example, at Manhattan School, most of the students there, I think, are primarily interested in becoming serious music composers um, and develop, developing their skills in, in kind of the, the classical sense. Um, although there are some, of course, that are interested in uh, in making in making some kind of career in the commercial world. Mm -hmm. But I think that. Um, I have, as a teacher, I, it's my job to be prepared to move in whatever direction that I can. And I think I've, I think I've done, um, I think I've been successful in both ways. My preference, of course, is, is to teach the craft that I essentially practice myself and to, because it, for one thing, it's less uniform. Um, and it really does involve creating a relationship between a somebody who's trying to express their individuality in the context of something that does have a communal background. But at the same time, they really want to be able to find a means of expression that belongs to them, discovering what that might be and discovering where they have, have really, I don't tell them, but they have to see within themselves whether, whether they possess the talent to really pursue something like that. Mm -hmm. That's much more of a challenge and uh, much more enriching, I think, for a teacher 
and hopefully it's also enriching, uh, enriching for the student as well. It's, um, but you know, on the other hand, there are, there are rewards in talking over orchestrational details, instrumentational details when it comes to you know appropriate means of film scoring and stuff and things like that. I don't enjoy it as much as a teacher, but it's something that um, I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't have a great deal of respect for the respected names of film scoring. I have to mm -hmm. say that because the voice leading is usually pretty crappy. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the fact is that, you know, John Williams is just basically ripping off Richard Strauss right and left. And if Richard Strauss hadn't been dead as long as he'd been dead, then we'd be talking lawsuits at the beginning. But absolutely. Yeah. But it's, you know, that's, but still that could, the one thing you can say about John Williams is he has mastered that approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and if he hadn't mastered that approach, as a lot of people who imitate him have not, then it stands out pretty strongly and it's pretty clear that it's kind of second rate John Williams, which is like 10th rate Ricard Strauss. And I, I can help people not be 10th rate Ricard Strauss, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I suppose with somebody like John Williams as well, they also have like, uh, you know, a whole community of like minions that are like doing the grunt work of their uh, well, notation. It's, it's, it's a team, I mean, the, the name Hans Zimmer as a composer is, is actually a firm. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these guys, they'll scroll out something on a piece of paper and it goes to the team, harmonize it, and then the other team orchestrates it, and then it goes through and the guy says, no, 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 I want this, I want I want 50 tubas here, not, not the uh, balance string section or whatever mm -hmm. they're going to decide. Um, I've heard some stories from studio musicians in, in L.A. that just um, either make me sick or just make me die laughing one or the other. Um, yeah. What people want and what they actually execute so mm -hmm. um yeah it's, it's 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 a team sport very definitely a team sport um it, I, I was curious sort of how you think about um where we are in the compositional world in terms of like instrumentation because um you know the standard sort of like composition uh or composer will like typically have to you know go for a collection of like acoustic instruments or maybe orchestral and then like you know, people start incorporating tapes or live electronics or, um, you know, eventually you're going to see some like, you know, electric guitars. Um, how important do you think it is to hang on to those standard instruments? And how important do you think it is to sort of push into more like Maximus P, uh, purely synthetic territory? Because, I mean, you can say they're both important, but um, I, I feel like for me, I've always sort of tried to move on from standard instruments and um, I should probably value them more. So I, I'm open to either perspective. Well, I take the approach. I mean, one of, part of my compositional education was um, being around a lot of percussionists. And percussion as an instrument, you know, what isn't percussion? I, mean, I got mm -hmm. a printer sitting over here. That's percussion. I got my coffee mug. That's a percussion instrument. Mm -hmm. I've got a piece of paper. Anything could be a percussion instrument. Um, a violin can be a percussion instrument. And if you think, as a percussionist would think, then essentially what an instrument is is a sound factory that produces certain things. When we talk about the violin, for example, the general thought about the violin is it's a sound factory that's been defined by the um, practice of the 18th 19, and 19th centuries to a large extent. Mm -hmm. But it's actually a factory that can produce a great many more things than that. Um, it can produce them in the context of an, an entirely acoustic situation. 
It can also produce them with interesting modifications when amplified and amplified in certain ways. Um, it can be, it doesn't have to be bowed uh, with a bow with, with hair on it. It can be, there are other things that can be done. I'm sort of sufficiently, um, I sort of take, take my love of animals into the realm of musical instruments. And I don't want to do anything that would harm a musical instrument because I love musical instruments. Yeah. Um, but I think part of, part of, I don't really see the, uh, I don't, I don't see this as sort of an either or situation, but rather, rather just a, a kind of a worldview where a percussionist would look at a violin as a potential sound source that you have to put in a particular setup in order to access it and make the sounds that that particular piece is calling for. Violinists, of course, are, are taught a technique that's really built around what, what happened uh, maybe in early music. You're, you're doing a lot of Bach. If you're more of a 19th century guy, you're looking at, um, I don't know, Vuitton and a lot of kind of hokey uh, Paganini kind of concerti that really are kind of sickening musically, but really are, are great you know, stunt type things, and, but also the rich vibrato and, and all that kind of thing. But the, the violin can produce many more things like that. Um, so I see it as a continuum. I don't really see it as a, uh, as something that's fenced off. I think it, I think what you, what you do with the instruments contextualizes them in one way or another, and you can contextualize them uh, electronically, but you can also take things and, work entirely acoustically which to me is much more intimate mm -hmm. i mean if you're gonna have sex with somebody you don't you know i mean I, obviously you can do it with, <laughs> with all the pornography that's available but it's, it's a little bit more intimate when there's another person in the room and you're actually two people having sex and really in a concert it's not that not that different i think that the intimacy of people going going to see people actually you know sweating it out produce producing a piece of music it's a different kind of experience um with electrical instruments, you know, that puts, that's a different kind of ambiance. It's just a, simply a different context. So I see the world as being much more expanded in that regard. But I think like a percussionist, I don't, I don't think like, okay, this is a violin. I've got to do this on it. Um, a remarkable experience I had, um, which I think maybe contrasts with a lot of people expect. A friend of, a friend of mine is, is Helmut Lachemann, a German composer. Mm -hmm. and I, I went to uh, the recording session that he did with the Jack Quartet for um, Reigenseligergeister in Bonn. And there was a sound that he was looking for. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, Chris Otto, the first violinist, was, says, oh, you mean this sound? Now he was using a completely different technique than what was notated in the score. It was not the technique. And certain quartets, they're all gonna do what's to notate in the score. They don't care what Lachenmann says. But Lachenmann said, no, that's the sound I want. So that's the sound they used on that recording in that, at that moment. So it's the sound that's important. That's, that's, what's, I, that, that's a perfect example of just sort of looking at, 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 the, uh, at any instrument as, as part of a resource that you just simply take advantage of, of, the, of the perfect resource. Um, you've got a machine that can do two different things and you didn't know it could do that second thing. Hey, use it for that second thing if you can. Mm -hmm. And not, you know, because it's the sound that's important, not necessarily the... Uh, the exact descriptor of the technique. Mm -hmm. um, there's a video that I saw of you. Um, I think it was from uh, like an Oberlin promotional thing. And you're talking about, you know, uh, how like electronics aren't that crazy to see with the guitar. But then, you know, uh, when somebody like, you know, puts their hands inside the piano and plays the inside, it's kind of a new 
performance technology. And you mentioned Lockenman, who um, I my awareness of his uh, some of his compositions is that he kind of puts strings together to create like a giant string instrument, as if it, like uh, you know collects the ensemble into one hyper instrument. And so I'm curious um, if this notion of a hyper instrument, whether it's like multiple instruments acting as one unit or um, sort of extensions of normal instruments, if this is uh, something that you think about at all? Well, Helmut's an orchestra composer primarily. I mean, most of his, most of his works, certainly his famous works are for fairly large orchestras. Um, I don't really have that luxury because I'm not a big fan of the orchestra in general. I've, mm -hmm. I've written pieces for orchestra, but I don't have a lot of confidence in that medium. I think some of that's uh, maybe more political than it is necessarily musical because I really admire uh, Lachimann's orchestra music incredibly, but it's not something I necessarily go to. Um, as a hyper instrument, I'm really not so sure. If you're talking about sort of composite sounds and a kind of orchestration of, of, of something that's going to sort of ultimately arrive at a new sound, yeah, I'm interested in those things, but I think I'm also in the context of the music that I write, I, I tend to sort of work I guess, um, more as much individually as I do in terms of some kind of hyper instrument. And also, I don't write for forces of that scope. Mm -hmm. um, and like I say, I think like a percussionist, and you know, with a percussionist, you, anything, you, you, it's all right there. You've got that, you've got that sound right, right there that you can produce. I like the challenge of get, getting in unusual sounds, and there might be some mimicry. But for example, you know, Musical mimicry in the past would be like something that's canonic or fugal, but imitation in the realm of timbre is something that can produce something that's, I think, well, like what you're talking about, like a hyper instrument where a sound that might be produced um, on a bowed instrument using a very, very light, perhaps a sort of uh, really kind of a friction type mm -hmm. of sound is something that can then move into a, develop into, into a wind instrument, which can develop into something that's percussive. And so, there's the, there's this this sense of of tem of temporal composition mm. that can result in sonorities that can become thematic uh, to some extent thematic. Gotcha. I don't really. Um, I don't necessarily. I, I don't really set out to create a, a, an instrument with necessarily globally from within the whole ensemble. Although I, and to some extent, I see it the larger ensemble works I've done is kind of like a machine I'm setting in motion some, at some times. But there are other aspects in, in, in what I do that there's an awful lot of what I've been done lately is built out of text and the, the supremacy of the text and methods of dealing with the text lifts it away from that realm, which is another major difference between what, what Lachanon does with text and what I do. What I, I want the text to be there and I have a, the text I choose have a very definite purpose Whereas his also have a very definite purpose, but the recognizability is part of creating that hyper instrument you're talking about, which I'm, I don't tend to do that much. I don't really, I, that's, that's not really my focus. The comprehension of the text is extremely important to me in a way that I don't think is quite as essential. It's more in the background for Lockheed. Uh You mentioned that you don't write uh, much for <laughs> orchestra and that's always been a medium that has not really interested me either. Um, like I used to play trombone, uh, like a symphony orchestra when I was a kid and that was fun and stuff. But um, thinking about it 
today it's kind of like it seems gluttonous almost because it's like how many strings do you have like it's like just the sort of expense that must go into facilitating that type of ensemble to me like it sort of like pushes my like this is unethical button um i'm curious if that resonates with you and i mean like should should people be focusing more on sort of small chamber ensembles more um, and should is a strong word but instead of uh you know these big sort of like uh you know ensembles that just must cost loads of money to fund well as a knee-jerk, a knee-jerk uh, idea at most institutions is that you've got to write a thesis and it's got to be for orchestra and basically has to be for the orchestra that that has existed for a couple hundred years mm-hmm. um and that's that's kind of a very american academic way of thinking i in europe there's a much more fluid approach i mean lock and mind's orchestral music is not played in the u.s it's played all over europe and that, a lot of that's because of the way it's funded so money definitely enters the picture it from the ethic from the ethical standpoint in america i totally agree with what, what you're suggesting about the uh, the ethics of, of that kind that kind of working if you're if you are being dealing with flexibly with it however then the expense is actually worth it because you've got you can deploy all these forces and use them in some extremely creative ways that we simply don't do in this country. Mm-hmm. Some schools used to do it. I'm not sure if anybody does it does it anymore. Um, uh, at the academic level, and if not at the academic level, it doesn't get done at all. But I think you know the orchestra in the United States and increasingly in in Western Europe is a function of what you can afford to have it do. I mean, if you just look at the way they're set up, especially regional orchestras with their relatively small cores and the the expense of, you know, adding a third wind instrument and having more than a timpanist play, it restricts what can be played or what's going to be commissioned. And it just becomes a political nightmare Um, and fosters incompetence, I think, amongst the musicians. I heard a performance by an orchestra, which I, I probably shouldn't name, but it's one of the top orchestras in this country. It was a performance of Notation of Boulez. It was terrible. It was pathetic. They were using um, people who were supposed to be good percussionists, and they were terrible. It was it was a monstrosity. And this is a top quality orchestra. Mm-hmm. I, I'm talking Philadelphia Orchestra level, not Philadelphia Orchestra, but that level of orchestra. It was pathetic. Um, and if, the thing is, a European, a European grouping hearing that would be just revolted by it. But that's perfectly acceptable here because we don't put in the money, we don't put in the time, and we're not interested in the experimentation. People don't know the difference. They do not really have a particularly educated audience for that kind of music. Mm-hmm. Um, for them, the Rite of Spring, which God is 100 years old, and that's early music, for God's sake. That's adventuresome for an American audience. And yep. they, you know, If somebody's a bar off, they're not going to know that either. Um, if they're 15 bars off, as I think they were at least in this Boulez performance, nobody's going to know that either. And maybe the conductor doesn't even know. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, with Boulez or like so much of this modern music, it seems like it is getting to this level of complexity where like, um, I don't know that the instrumentalist can really keep up with what the compose. like, I feel like it's like, uh, you know, like hacking and security, like you can't really keep up with the uh, the hackers from a security standpoint. So like composers are going to be doing crazier and crazier things. And like, eventually, you know, what are you going to do as an instrumentalist? Um, do you, I mean, do you agree that there's a sort of tendency towards increasing complexity? And do you think that it will eventually uh, have to top out? I mean, you would maybe you would say that it did with like Steve Reich or something, 
Um, but it seems like stuff is just getting more and more difficult to play. Uh, yeah. I think there's a couple of things that um, I think keep things going, at least. There, there's certain things that I don't feel a great affinity with. But composers, I mean, composers have always put performers under pressure. And so pressure is, is part of being a performer. Um, the pressure on the composer is to make is to make it is to be able to reach or to give enough meaning that the performer wants wants to reach that level. Um, the orchestra for me is not really the best place to do that unless unless you have the reputation and the money to really support the amount of rather large amount of rehearsal time that's really required to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so chamber music, I think, is is where the complexity really takes place and complex and that's where the, you're going to hear probably the most complicated types of things i mean fernie house for example is a chamber composer and that music is extremely complicated but it is also that's the medium that that can be executed and a lot of performers at least from the ego standpoint really want to rise to that occasion they want to rise to meet it um if if it's rewarding enough if the if the musical product is rewarding enough then I think also that's going to generate the interest. Um, I my music is not necessarily that complicated, but I put performers under a lot of pressure by the other things I ask them to do, like sing and and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and some people don't like to do that at all, but some do. And uh, I've 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 been very fortunate in my in my career too. I've worked with some extremely talented young musicians who adore challenges and like, like to be asked to do things um, that are out of the ordinary, like to do things that really articulate themselves, that give them an opportunity to be expressive in more ways. I think that will always be the case. I think there'll always be that sort of cutting edge where you're gonna find people who really, really, want, really want to rise to that challenge. It works that sort of stand out. I mean, Lachenmann's Pression is an example of something that, I don't think he would tell you that that's one of his favorite works of his own, but cellists really say, you know, if I'm going to play in this, I'm, I need to master this piece. I've got to learn that piece. It's sort of a, a Bach cello suite of the, in the present. Um, and that, that, that's something that, and that's complex. Technically it's complex. It's very complicated to only make the sounds that are notated in the score, even just to get the bow in the right position to make those sounds. So I think there's complexity of all kinds the rhythmic and pitch complexity, you know, I think there certainly are limits to what people are going to be able to execute. Um, and I think a lot of composers who write music that is extremely complicated, maybe, I don't know what their expectations necessarily are, but I think it kind of varies from person to person. Um, I've made demands that I think, you know, did they realize everything I wanted? Probably not. Could I determine exactly that they, they have or have not? Not necessarily, but I'm not really sure that that's entirely the most important consideration anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it comes down to the motivation of what that complexity is supposed to produce and you know what's what lies behind it. If it's simply to be complicated, if it's simply to, to challenge the ego of a performer, you know, I think that's, um, I'm not sure that that's particularly good motivation, but if there's something, something richer that lies, lies uh, behind it, then I think that that that's uh, that's a rather different. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, for example, Zanakis is a composer who 
has written some extremely complicated pieces, but I mean, there's people tend to sort of get submerged in the music formal aspects of Xenakis and they don't necessarily see the poetic side, especially in his later music. I don't, I don't think they, they, they understand um, Xenakis's notion of poetry and poetics. Xenakis's mm -hmm. um, uh book uh I believe formal music uh, i never remember the exact title because it's kind of uh <laughs> nondescript but um i feel like that's you know uh, an incredible resource for composers and like for especially for modern composers who are like interested in you know applying discrete math and all this type of stuff um i'm curious if you can point me toward a few uh sort of fundamental compositional resources whether they're books or lectures or um, you know, even like the correspondences that you did with Lachman, like what are some particularly enriching uh, resources for composers? I think this 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 is this is going to. I don't know if it articulates my age or or whatnot, but for as a compositional resource there, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things to look at, but, but unless one has the historical perspective to place it in, the, the resource value is really kind of difficult to say. Um, when Lachenmann writes about his sort of three principles of composition, they're extremely rich and complicated and are written by a guy who's in, in his seventies, um, now eighties and unless one is really in that context as a resource to somebody else, it, it's not, you don't really get the, the richness of it. Um, I was talking to him once about dialectics and to, he said, look, the most important thing for a resource for a composer is to ask the question, can you make a, can you make a good piano reduction of the Brahms Requiem? Hmm. Cause I mean, to him, it really comes down to technique. Um, and it comes down to history. It comes down to really have an understanding of that history. I mean, this is a guy who can tell you in the in Mahler symphonies how long it takes to go from Stuttgart to anywhere in Europe, because that's what he'll, he'll listen to Mahler symphonies in, as, as he's traveling. And it can tell you how many it takes and where, where you end <laughs> in what movement of what symphony. Mm -hmm. um, because I think the historical background is extremely important. As resources, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's been written and a lot of stuff that's been written about practice. I'm not saying that composers don't tell the truth, but I, I think the truth often lies in not, not so much in, in what they might, it looks like they're prescribing, but really the background that led up to that. When you know that Sinakis, for example, for that his background as an architect and all everything he, everything he the crucible of, of his ideas is sort of founded on, on mathematics and architecture and, and various concepts there, as much as whatever his musical background, which is by no means as slight as people make it out to be. I think that that, um, that, that, that can sort of change your perspective because that the background that feeds into that and the desires that feed into that, um, I think are extremely important. Um, so I don't really, you know, I don't really have a, I don't really have any, any recommendations. I mean, there's, there's tons of stuff to read. And I think one of the problems that um, um, can be had in, in accessing those resources, you get, you, get, you get the frosting, but the cake that underneath it is something that, could, that can be kind of missing. So I don't really have recommendations in that regard. It's like when Lachemann went to 
wherever he goes and calls himself Santa Claus in reverse. You know, Santa Claus brings you gifts. I'm taking all of your gifts away. You can't, you can't, you can't use any of those things. Those techniques for flute and violin, they don't belong to me. They don't, so I'm taking them all away. You have to do something else. And that's, that's really, you have to, he arrived at that point. And the, all those sounds, of course, are available. But the context of what got him to the point of exploring those sounds, that's something everybody has to discover, I think, from the inside out. That's where the, the background and compositional technique, I think, becomes extremely important. I mean, if, if I were going to say what, what's a good compositional resource for people, I'm going to say study of counterpoint. I mean, the, the study of what's rational and sort of building from the rational into, into the category of what if is something that's your, that's, that's your compositional lifetime. Um, I love to read uh, works by Pierre Schaeffer was a really crappy composer um mm -hmm. and uh also his, his compositional ideas are really kind of stupid um and he basically ruined a whole generation of french composers at the group de recherche musicale um with his uh, traité des objets musicaux but that's okay it's still it's still fascinating to look at it but you know at least you kind of down the garden path a little bit so i'm, I'm very wary of uh of too many things i think I think those those things are kind of fun things, fun reads to leave to your old age, maybe as prescriptions. They're even if they're not snake oil, mm -hmm. uh, they can turn to snake oil real quick. Um, uh, so, in the pursuit of technique, like I've always considered myself to be somebody who like really values technique, and I think that there's a, uh, I mean, whether as a performer, as a composer, but like there's a certain type of person who hears technique. And they, I think, equated to like one showing off. And so they'll sort of write it off and be like, well, technique isn't everything. Um, but I think that it kind of is everything. And um, when you look at it a little bit more closely, it's like technique is a vast space and has a lot of sort of subcategories to it. So I'm curious if somebody was pursuing compositional technique, um, what sort of like, how would you reduce it to some more manageable aspects of technique? Uh, if, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, the way I, the way I explain it to people is that, you know, the study of historical practices and techniques is, this is not so you get to be a really good writer of fugue or whatever, but these, these are the barbells you lift to get stronger. So when you become in, like in an athletic situation, mm -hmm. you know, I, I ran competitively for a while and uh, I hated workouts at the track. I mean, I really hated it, but I did them religiously. Um, because that's how you get faster. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you know, some, sometimes it, you, re, you really feel you reap the benefits of all that work. And sometimes you're right on the border of injury and you get injured, but I mean, nevertheless, you know, the technical aspects of, of that kind of preparation really leads on to some good things. I think if all one, if, if technique for its own sake, um, that can sort of become, as you say, a kind of a stale um, you know, what a good boy am I kind of composer, what a good girl am I kind of composer. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that, that when technique is looked at appropriately and, and dealt with appropriately, then it leads to questions of what if, for example, you, you're going along and you get kind of stale and you think, well, this is, I'm, this is just, I'm kind of just basically working the levers and, and, and relying on my technique, but I'm not really thinking about this stuff. Technique 
when it becomes stale, if you ask the question, well, what if I don't do this? What if I do something else? Um, and it can lead in a lot of different directions. I mean, in Bach, for example, if you analyze some of the verticalities in Bach, they don't make any sense. They violate every rule in the book. Um, Brahms had a huge collection of, of parallel fifths and octaves of, of Bach. Bach didn't care about that stuff, <laughs> mm-hmm. not that much. Um, there are parts of their places in Bach where you, you look at what's lining up and you're thinking, God, you know, if, if a student of mine did that, I'd, they'd be 10 points off on this assignment. Mm-hmm. Bach, Bach stretched those limits. He didn't live constantly with those limits. He wrote some very ordinary fugues. There's some really ordinary fugues in the world, typically. They're just, you know, they're nice. But, you know, just because they have the Bach name on it, I mean, you know, this comes, there's some kind of Campbell's tomato soup in there. Um, mm-hmm. so not great. I mean, it's not going to kill you. It's okay, but it's not, it's not, it's not his best effort. He would be the, probably the first person to say, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I don't like this key. It doesn't work very well. <laughs> Even it doesn't sound really in tune to me on the clavier. So the hell with it. Um, but so, I mean, there, there are times when everybody works the levers a little bit, but technique, technique also leads you if it, if it's, if technique is, is not a box that you live in, but a, but a, a way to open doors and, into other avenues. Um, and it works out very well. Um, I had a remarkable experience um, maybe about, I don't know, 24 years ago, 25 years. Uh, no, not that much. Maybe 17 or 16 years ago where I was writing something. It was just, it was going nice. It was a commission. It was cooking along. And I just got, what am I doing here? You know, what, what's, yeah, it's developing, it's moving. And I just sort of asked myself, you know, this voice in the back of my head, why don't you, what would happen if the cellos just put down her instrument and started singing a song? What if she just said, screw this, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm, I want to do this. And, you know, the voice inside me said, okay, you know, you had too much coffee today. Don't, don't, don't make a decision. Um, but it kept coming back to me. And eventually I, I said, you know, what have I got to lose? You know, mm-hmm. you know and also, this was a challenge to my technique. Now, I'm not saying everybody can do it or everybody ought to do that, but you know, the, the piece had gone, it wasn't stale. It was just sort of, you know, grinding things out and it was going to make a good, a nice sausage that people, people could eat. But, you know, I, I had, I wanted to do something else. I didn't want to just do the same old thing. And that's without a grasp of technique without recognizing where that t- my technique was leading me, I would not made that, ch- I would have not accepted that challenge. Um, and I'm not saying the piece works to, that everybody necessarily likes it or whatever, but it was a very important thing for me to accept that challenge and to realize that the challenge was there for me to do. Um, without um, working out things technically, without having that technical grasp, I think the piece would have, would have just, you know, it would have kind of petered out and it would have been okay. Would, and, you know, people would have said it was interesting. Um, but I, I don't want to be interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, want, I want to provoke. Um, interest, interesting it leaves the audience exactly the way they were when they walked in. And uh, I don't want to do that. I don't, want, I don't want the audience to leave a concert um, just... I, if they're leaving a little perplexed, that's probably good. And um, I'd like to, I'd like to have some things that they find hard to accept. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd also like to have have done the technical means to make it to make it feasible 
that they're that and rational. Um, not to say they've got to agree with me, but that I, I want I want to at least lay the foundations to do some things. That's where those challenges will work out. And I don't want to be predictable. I mean, that's the other thing. The technique, the understanding of technique and where technique can lead you, is very important because you avoid predictability that way. People who lack technique often keep recomposing the same thing. And there's a lot of well-known composers who really are pretty much recomposing, doing a great deal of recomposition and not, not really developing anything new and different or not moving in a different direction. So you need technique as the sort of tool to explore the new territory to keep things from being stale. Um, that's, that's how talent, that's how talent grows. Um, I think that, um, the really talented people I know um, follow that. They follow their um, the inspiration com comes from what for, from what you are from you have uh, gathered technically, but also where your imagination kind of meets it. Um, another piece I did a long time ago, my inspiration, if you want to call it that, was I was imagining the audience kind of chained to their chairs. <laughs> Uh, with the floor being heated so their feet were burning and they were beaten with whips and I, I wanted I wanted I wanted to I was for some reason I was mad at the audience um, this was a time when I was writing off um, my electrical bill I was write, writing off my prorated portion of the electrical bill in the state I was living in because I was not supporting capital punishment and I wasn't going to pay for their, their electric chair um, so I decided I wanted, I wanted to get the audience out. It's kind of contradictory. I wanted to, I wanted to kill the audience um, and get my revenge that way. But you know, eventually what that led to was, you know, I, I had to, I'd ask myself, well, you're not gonna do that. You know, I don't wanna go to prison um, for torturing the audience, but how can, I, how can I place the audience under that kind of stress? What sonically can I do to do that? And I, I'm not saying the solution I came up with was achieve Quite, anything quite that extreme but it led to me it led to me asking uh asking technical questions i would not have asked otherwise and looking for solutions i would never have, have looked for otherwise um to to create a distorted musical context that would really at least from for myself at that time period uh create create a degree of stress discomfort um mm -hmm. but not not ugly just discomfort um there's plenty of sounds that are extremely aggressive and assertive that create discomfort, but are by, by, by no means ugly. Mm -hmm. This this piece sounds like it should be performed alongside that uh, Jason Eckhart piece that has visuals that use like enhanced interrogation techniques or whatever. Oh, it's, it's his rendition. Yeah, yeah. We did that on a concert I did once. Yeah. Nice. Um, it, you mentioned uh, counterpoint when we were talking about technique, and um, I'm curious who you think some of the best exemplars of uh, contemporary counterpoint are? Hmm. It seems to have taken on a different meaning than, you know, when, when people it talk about species, species counterpoint and all that. It definitely has. I think, um, That's a tough one, mainly mainly because I think I've got to kind of go back, go back and think about it in a way that is perhaps more geared to timbre and uh, 
than, than it is to other things because the primary components in classical counterpoint is basically pitch and rhythm. Mm-hmm. But now I think it's, it's, going to, it's going to evolve coloristic transformations. And one of the things that, that can happen is textures can become so homogenized, counterpoint kind of gets lost. Um, uh, one guy who I think does a really good job is James Dillon. I think, and like the Sodi Waste is, is, a, is a piece that has really good counterpoint in it. Um, a lot of his music is sort of seeking counterpoint. He sort of rejects the complexity label. And I think one of the reasons he does is because he's genuinely interested in, in creating the, um, the sense of contrast and oppositions in color, especially that, uh, that recreates counterpoint. So I, I, kind, I, like, I like what he does a good bit. Um, Obviously, I'm a big fan of Helmut Lachenmann, and I think he's somebody who's, who's also quite capable of, of making counterpoint. I think some of his uh, solo music actually is contrapuntal in the same sense that one refers to the um, Bach solo uh, pieces mm-hmm. as containing counterpoint, but it's on a temporal level um, as much as maybe more than anything else. Um, I could probably I could probably expand this list in in a very wide 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 that wide way mm-hmm. um, if I thought about it a little uh, uh, with a little bit more depth. Um, some of my former students I think do very very well with this um, very very well with uh, creating different layers. One one question I I ask myself technically is what's the difference between composition that exists in, in a wide variety of layers. And what's and something that's contrapuntal, because um, there can there, there can be differences, um, and how does how do we analyze those layers? For example, in music I particularly uh, like, um, there's, for example, there may be a pitch layer and a pitch architecture that you can trace throughout the piece, but it's contrasted by layers that perhaps have to do with tone color manipulations that may be working in a very very different manner than what's happening in the pitch world. So there are two different structures going on at the same time. Is that counterpoint? Um, perhaps counterpoint is the basis technically through which you arrive at something like that. But in and of itself, it's not really counterpoint. Mm-hmm. But counterpoint is sort of in a background structure to me in that. And I think, I think technically from that standpoint, counter, you, you can expand the world, that world quite a bit in terms and talking about composers. Um, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'd mostly be mentioning names of composers whose music I, I particularly admire, but it would probably be far too limited a list because I, I, th- I think counterpoint is far, is far from lost, but mm-hmm. I think it's expanded into a more structural zone than it used to be like, you know, when you talk about species counterpoint or, or 18th century style or 16th century style counterpoint, you're talking about usually pretty microscopic things, especially in species counterpoint. That's really, that's really counterpoint under a microscope. But if you expand it into more integrator structural things and what counterpoint really means. Um, and you see this in box too, where you take a measure and you understand what's going on in that measure harmonically just fine. But you look at the lineup and it's not spelling those chords. Those chords don't exist. Those are ninths and fourths and stuff that, sorry, that's do that in species counterpoint. And, you know, Rameau's going <laughs> to, and JJ Fuchs are going to be really pissed off at you. Um, so, I mean, it's, I think it counterpoint was, is always more of expansive than, than, than the pedagogical restrictions that it creates. So from that standpoint, 
I think composers who whose structures are complicated and layered and have possibly more than one way of not just analyzing, but really hearing the entire phenomenon um, that, that you can, you can like, like a, a complicated book that you can read several times and you get a very different impression each time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I think counterpoint is really geared to do at least. And I think that happens in a lot of music um, happening now. Um, that's why I still like to teach it. If I can, if, if people are willing to sort of knuckle down and, <laughs> and, uh, and, go through that discipline. Um, it, I think that's an interesting way to consider counterpoint because, you know, it is kind of about like synergy between two individual things and how it's, it's not just two melodies. It's, you know, uh, two melodies that are supporting each other and uh, making each other better. And yeah, like the formal aspects, whether it's like more like rhythmic or like the phrase length uh, or even just like, you know, the way that you, divvy up uh you know different chapters of a a piece um like it seems like there are plenty of opportunities to have sort of like formal elegance in that and i consider myself kind of obsessive about form and i'm curious um basically if you were to just like give an exercise for a composer to explore form with um and maybe this is putting it on the spot but do you have any sort of um like uh homework that you would give somebody um, I think it form, I, I kind of, I, I like uh, Vares's uh, form formulation that form is the result of a process and the process itself, I mean, it, it can be, it can be an abstract process, but given any material, one of the, if when a student comes in with an idea, for example, or I have an idea, um, the questions I have to ask myself are many. I have to I have to find out what does this material want to do, you know, what can it do, what what it can what can it grow into, and exploring that is is really um, finding finding what its capabilities are. I mean, that's that's something the material itself has to tell you. I think from the outside, um, I used to be a, absolutely diametrically opposed to recapitulation. If I found anything in a piece of mine that looked like recapitulation, I got rid of it immediately. Um, or anything that was obviously a recognizable recurrence. I mean, to me, that was anathema. Um, it's it's uh, as bad as having an octave. You know, it's just you know, stay away. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think if the material calls for it, if 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 there's if there's something you can work, you know, some some material that you can, if you put it in the context of a form, it can really come out canned and, and almost surgically horrible. But I but Sometimes the material needs to needs to have something a bit more concrete, and that's that's really a question of, of what the composer can do, what the composer wants to do, and what that material's capabilities are. So the first for me, form is always a question of investigating the material, and that's dialectic um, all the way. That's a dialectical process. That's where um, I don't I don't teach Marx, but on the other hand, that to me that's that's. Uh, or Hegel, but that's the that's that's what has to be done. That's where form originates. Um, the period of sort of the form, the fixed forms, um, either whether we're talking about the uh, medieval and Renaissance forms that were basically poetic and seemed to work out for a while before people started to develop them out of out of that context, 
and then the sort of fixed forms of the classic area, they didn't last that long. I didn't go on for that long a period of time. Um, so form is always form is always growing from the material and growing from the context and growing from where where the composer is capable of taking it. So I don't I don't have any exercises like that. I to me one of the things I I try to do in any in a teaching uh, situation is to ap approach things from the standpoint of not just what the student wants to do, but what, what does the material they've invented want to do? Because I think that's the best way for anybody to look at it is don't, don't, you know, don't, don't look at your child as a reproduction of yourself. Look at your child for what your child wants to do, can be or what it wants to do itself. Learn from it too. And material has a, has a great deal of educational value in and of itself. Cool. Um, I don't, I'm not meaning to be elusive and- uh, No, 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 this is, uh, but, that's good. Um, I, I guess with the, the time that we have left, I just wanted to sort of uh, briefly ask about some of the activism that you do, because, you know, uh, I, I first encountered, I just accidentally closed out of that. Um, uh, you know, I, I became aware of your work and sort of uh, uh, what you do through Jason Eckhart and uh, Jason and I have a lot of overlapping interests, you know, uh, in terms of animal welfare and um, something that I asked him about and that, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about is basically like, how do, uh, you know, altruistic or activist type tendencies feed into creative tendencies? Um, and, you know, when we spoke on the phone, you mentioned that you sort of have to have two parallel streams. Um, but um, is there, but like, is there a way that artists can uniquely contribute to these types of uh, movements um, or, you know, uh, is there any way that they feed into each other and support each other or does it just have to be separate? Just curious where your mind goes with that. Well, I think, you know, an artist is a whole person mm -hmm. and uh, your orientation is what you bring to every experience. I mean, there's the technical training you get, but then there's sort of the whole background that you possess, whether it's um, scientific or literary or, or whatever it is. Um, for example, I know I'm for myself. Um, my interests um, are pretty broad, but on, but sort of my orientation is uh, is built in in certain channels that are I would say um, have a great great deal uh, to do with dialectical materialism and uh, and sort of a view of society that is not necessarily far from capitalistic. Um, but I mean, I, I don't compose anti-capitalist music that is supposed to make, make people pick up red flags and, and go marching or anything. Mm -hmm. That's the orientation, that, that's the way I look at My orientation is going to shine out in that. My, I gravitate towards, especially poets from Latin America um, with a kind of a socialist, uh, because I partly not not because they're of the socialist bent because the most magnificent poets in South America are all basically Marxists themselves. Pablo Neruda, Loki Dalton, um, Victor Hara. It's all these really fine writers, and I think most writers probably tend away from the uh, monetization of uh, of society and art. Um, but that's just my orientation. The activism part of it, I think, 
you know, I don't think that my, I don't, I don't think, I think a guy like Cornelius Cardew, for example, got very, very confused with the, the function of the function of what he was doing artistically and, and how he want, base, turned into somebody who was trying to essentially pander to, to a class of, to a class of people who are simply not interested in, in the philosophical foundation of what he was doing. I mean, they're really, they're really sort of two different worlds. The one informs the other for sure. Um, socially, what I, what I want to do um, is I want to be active. And for me, activism is not stimulating other people to do things, but to do, to do things myself. Um, I spent years teaching, I don't know, middle and upper class people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that, those are the, those are the people who are going to study music and I'm a musician. And so that's, that's, that's how I did things. Um, but also part of what I've, I've been doing at least since 1988 was I've been doing, doing things, uh, working with when I could in, in certain contexts in, in prisons. And as time has gone on, the underserved, uh, that underserved population is something that was very, 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 very much on my mind. There's that whole under, underserved world is one that I feel, especially going back to when I was younger, I, I, I was a, a leftist student. I was, I marched, I did all, I did, I did those things. I'm not into marches. I'm into getting my hands really dirty. I'm into, I'm into, I'm not going to sign petitions. I'm not going to have clever bumper stickers. I'm not going to, I'm not going to march in parades. I'm going to get my hands dirty. I want to go in and try, I want to, I would, if my music could change the world, that would make me very, that would shock me. But I'd be, that's, that's one of the motivations. So I, I, want, I want to change the way people think in the way, in the music that I write. But also, and I'm very committed that way, but I'm also, I don't want to live in a world where people are constantly saying, well, you can't change the world. Bullshit. You can mm -hmm. change the world. If you take the attitudes, you're not going to change the world, then you're not going to change the world. I hear people say, do no harm. What? Mm -hmm. For them, it means do nothing. And I believe from activism, I believe in commitment. Um, you know, Jay is committed to, to, to um, animal safety, animal caring, all of that stuff. I mean, he, that's a big, a big part, part of his system. He's not a bleeding heart in that regard. He's taking action. And that's, that's what's necessary. I think what, whatever, whatever, is, uh, whatever moves you, you know, um, jump into it. I'm I'm retired to to a considerable extent as as a teacher, but that's just you know I'm not going to sit down and say, well, I did my job. Um, I'm I'm now working in something that to me is in some respects more important than anything that I've done before, because these are people who don't nobody ever talks to. Mm -hmm. um, they're looked at as completely disposable by society. And once they get locked in that system, if they don't have money and they can't afford a real lawyer, then basically they're going to stay in that system for the rest of their lives. Are they complicit in that? Yes, of course they're complicit in that. But the fact is it's very, very difficult to break out of that box once you're in it, mainly because there's very, very little support there to do so. There's a lot of things that are on the surface look like they can help you. But I mean, any anybody with a felony applying for a job can tell you exactly what's going to happen when 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 their background check is done, and just what their what their ceiling is going to be, regardless of their intelligence and their talent. 
And that's something that should be unacceptable in our society. Um, we need to look at ourselves collectively, but also we need to look at the individualities of things instead of sort of trying to prepackage everything. That's where activism, I think, needs to go. Um, just like music is an individuating thing. I think we need to start looking at people as individuals with capabilities and not judge them in, in these enormous classifications and try, try to find that one solution or the one person to blame or something like that. But instead sort of take each person as an individual and ask the right questions rather than constantly the wrong ones. It's a it's kind of funny uh, thinking about how you know you wanted to sort of punish the audience by putting them in chains, but then meanwhile your uh, place that you sort of make positive impacts is uh, in you know the incarceration system. Um, so it sounds like you want to contradictions are normal. Contradictions <laughs> are who we are. Uh, so you want to positively impact those sort of underserved communities, but then um, you know maybe save the provocation for the concert hall. I want to make the audience work. The audience has been has been got has society has gotten fat. Well, the audiences have gotten fat up here. I want to mm -hmm. make it work. And the fact is, the one the one consistent fact is, prison is a place that infantilizes people because they do nothing there mm -hmm. um, because of the fear of people uh, making making uh, weaponizing things. Uh, a lot of different trade things simply don't exist anymore. You can't work on a car in prison anymore. You can't learn a trade in there because everybody thinks they're going to make it, make a shank. You're going to make some kind of tool. Mm -hmm. And so people don't learn, don't learn anything. They get out of prison uh, with very, very little in terms of training and skill, which we should not want that to happen. We should yeah, be no. prepared to accept the risk and, and, and go forward that way. Um, but I think, I think that, um, I, th I think challenging people is what it's all about and providing challenges and supporting people to, to understand that they can meet that challenge, to give, give people the support they need. Whether you're talking about a student, whether you're talking about an audience that you've got to challenge and prod a little bit, or whether you're talking about a guy who thinks everybody's out to get him and they haven't got, got a prayer. And you just and you sit there and say, hey, give him a call. Call, call up this employer. We'll write a, I'll write a letter for you. We'll write, my, my people will write a letter for you. We'll, we'll see what we can do. We're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna just, we're not gonna fall at the first hurdle. We're gonna keep pushing. And if they have, if people have that kind of support and that kind of challenge, it's amazing what people can accomplish. Not everybody, but I'm, I refuse to believe that, uh, uh, I refuse, I, I refuse to accept the possibility that we can't help if we just roll up our sleeves and keep trying. Mm -hmm. Some people, yes. They're, they're, the world is filled with failure. Every musician knows about failure and rejection and all that. But I think that um, helping people to accept that aspect of, of life is also very important. When somebody is coming out of jail and they feel like a failure, letting them know that they're not a failure, that failure is, failure is individual. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not a social norm. And we can fight social norms by being the individuals we can be. Very cool. Um, I think I've hit pretty much all the, the points I wanted to ask you about. Um, is there anything that you want to talk about before uh, we close out? Anything that you want to uh, promote or anything? Um, I got a couple of premieres coming up in New York City in uh, late October and early November. Check out uh, the International Contemporary Ensemble and the Talk Ensemble websites and uh, come on out.
Excellent. Cool. Well, uh, Lewis, this has been a pleasure talking to you. Um, thanks for joining me and uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. Okay, John. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. My pleasure. All right. Adios. Adios.